It's Thursday, September 28th, 2023, and welcome back to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power in America and around the globe. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Distinguished Policy Fellow in Journalism, but I'm not the only fellow who dabbles in podcasting these days. And if you don't believe me, go to Hoover Institution website, which is hoover.org. Click on the tab at the top of the homepage. It says commentary. Go to where it says multimedia and up will come the audio podcasts. There are about a dozen or more in all. Uh, I will humbly brag that my podcast is at the top of the list, and that's because I try to get the best and the brightest of the Hoover Institution, today being no exception. My guest on this show is is Mickey Levy. Mickey is a Hoover Institution visiting scholar and senior economist at Berenberg Capital Markets. His research focuses on monetary and economic policies and how they influence economic and financial performance. I had the pleasure of listening to Mickey earlier this year at the Hoover Institution's annual monetary policy conference. He led a discussion on forecasting inflation and output. Today, we're going to talk about inflation and a few related economic topics. Mickey, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Now, one thing I left out in my very brief biography of you is that you called inflation a lot, a uh, lot before a lot of other people jumped on the inflation bandwagon. How did you see this coming? Well, I looked at really standard models. I saw the $5 trillion increase in deficit spending in response to COVID. And then I saw the Fed lowering interest rates to zero. Mm-hmm. and start its massive asset purchases. The Fed ended out purchasing about half of all of the Treasury's increase in debt. And so just the the extraordinary jump in deficit spending that was that was accommodated and monetized by the Fed. And that led me to believe there was going to be a surge in aggregate demand. And then it all unfolded. Now, Mickey, you know, I uh, at Hoover, I toil in the vineyard of politics, which means that I have to watch things like the debate last night, which is two hours of my life that I wish I had back. Actually, I'm being cynical. It's debates are always fascinating in terms of how they are carried off. Um, but I mentioned this for this reason, Mickey. Um, people like me who follow politics for a living, we are forever having a debate about how Donald Trump became president of the United States. And we're going to be arguing this for the rest of our lives, I think. There are people who see this as a result of immigration policy. They think Democrats were too coastal in their attitudes going into the 2016 election. Uh, Some people blame it on Hillary's campaign. Some people blame it on Jim Comey, the Electoral College, social media, you name it. And they want to somehow assign that to why Trump got elected. In other words, just not consensus on Trump. And Mickey, if Trump wins again in 2024, we'll be having the same argument all over again. Here's why I mentioned this, because you work in economics and you study the Fed and you study inflation. Is there consensus when it comes to what caused high inflation? And is there consensus in terms of rating or judging the Fed's reaction to it? There's there's more consensus that the Fed misstepped, mm-hmm. that um, once the economy started uh, rebounding rapidly, and employment started increasing rapidly in response to the fiscal and monetary stimulus, um, and, and you start to see a sharp rise in inflation, um, the Fed should have um, not waited so long to raise rates and start to normalize monetary policy. There's, there's pretty much consensus on that. But there is a d- disagreement about the sources of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, once inflation started rising um, pretty markedly, the Fed and many um, argued that, uh, don't worry, it's just uh, transitory 
due to negative supply shocks. So think of the broader framework where inflation or a persistent increase in, in the general price level is, is driven by excess demand relative to productive capacity. Mm-hmm. I mentioned at the outset that you had this unprecedented $5 trillion increase in deficit spending over 25% of GDP. Right. And zero rates in the Fed, you know, basically monetizing so much of the debt. And that in any model should have said, okay, you're going to see a sharp acceleration in demand. And so that's the side I take. The Fed and many others took the side, oh, it's just transitory. And this this a transitory assessment um, stayed too long at the Fed even after we saw clear signs of increasing demand. But even to this day, um, and finally, you know, Jay Powell, the chair of the Fed, actually the day after uh, President Biden renominated him as chair, he testified in front of the Senate Banking Committee and he says, oh, I guess I'm tired of this term transitory. Let's, let's put it to rest. And, and, that, and that led to the Fed saying, okay, now we have to start raising rates a lot. But even to this day, you have a number of uh, Fed members and some Fed research would say, oh, it was largely due to supply shocks, mm-hmm. negative supply shocks. So there is this difference of opinion. Why do you think the Fed decided to label it transitory? What's your sense? That, that, I mean, that's a great question. Here's my assessment. The Fed had this presumption in the last, in the decade prior to the pandemic, that is the decade following the, the great financial crisis, um, you know, you had inflation below the Fed's 2% target. Um, the Fed was worried that if it stayed low, inflationary expectations might fall sharply and the Fed would be constrained by the zero lower bound of interest rates. And so it it actually wanted inflation uh, to go higher. But I think the Fed's perspective was following the financial crisis, it reduced rates to zero, Mm -hmm. did its quantitative easing and inflation stayed low. So the Fed had this presumption that inflation would stay low, whatever they did. And this right. got reflected in their in their models and the way they talked about things. And so that when inflation started rising materially above their 2% long run target, and in fact, even when inflationary expectations became unanchored to 2%, they just presumed it was transitory. And of course, let, let's admit it, at the same time, there was anecdotal evidence of supply shocks, of disruptions to global supply chains and the like. So they fed off of the anecdotal evidence and basically didn't acknowledge that their monetary stimulus and all the fiscal stimulus was driving up demand. Okay, since you mentioned 2%, Mickey, I, I have to ask since I'm economically naive, what is so magical about 2% inflation? I, I just hear this constantly, 2% inflation, 2% and 2% inflation, 2%. Why 2%? I don't think there's anything magical about it, Bill. But what I, so if, if we think about it, um, 
ever since the Full Employment Act of 1978, the mm -hmm. Fed has had this dual mandate, uh, low inflation and maximum employment. And, you know, during the when Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan were chairs of the Fed during their reign, um, they were looking down at lower numbers. They wanted inflation to go lower, but there was never any official target. And then along came the central banks of New Zealand and Australia and Canada in the early 90s that all targeted two, targeted, and they picked 2%. And then the e European Central Bank also had 2% as an upward bound. And so the Fed finally uh, codified uh, their their official target is, is 2% in 2012. Um, they recently, with their new strategic plan, they rolled out in, in um, Octo October of 2020, they released that 2%. Now they have this bias to, to let it go above two. But, but basically 2% is, it's close enough to zero, they could kind of call it price stability. Mm -hmm. But it isn't zero. They want to have this buffer so that they think that gives them flexibility to respond in, to, to the next economic downturn. So the Labor Department put out numbers in mid-September, Mickey, and I think the annual inflation rate was 3.7%. That's right. It was right. Okay, so, so the CPI is 3.7, but if you take away the volatile food and energy, it's mm -hmm. it's more like four and a half. And of course, the Fed, since the late 1990s, is focused on the personal consumption expenditure price right. index. Um, but yeah, inflation is markedly above um, their official target and the mandate that Congress gave them. And that's good news in this regard. The inflation rate in 22, Mickey, was about, what, 6.5%, I believe. So you can talk about it coming down, and we're going to get to the White House trying to trying to talk about things being better, the frustrations they're running into. Um, again, with uh, two rather simple, naive questions for you. Who's getting hit the worst with inflation, and who's actually benefiting from it? Okay, Bill, I mean, this this is a very interesting question that, that uh, so... Inflation hurts the economy. Inflation right. reduces real purchasing power. Mm -hmm. um, it gives it, it muddles up the price signals in the economy as, as households and businesses uh, conduct their their business. Who's hurt by inflation? Uh, it has tended to be middle and lower income earning households. Mm -hmm. Because if you think about it, that well, inflation's only four and a half percent now and was much higher earlier. The three largest spending items for middle and lower income households is the cost of shelter, and mm -hmm. many of them rent, right? The cost of energy, which has gone way, way, way above, you know, the increase in the general price level, and the cost of food. And that's also gone up much higher than the CPI. So it's 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 um, the lower income people, and, and and then if you ask who's benefited from this, homeowners, the Case Shiller Home Price Index has has increased over forty percent, double the increase in the general price level. 
and um, another beneficiary is owners of the stock market. Mm-hmm. And so, so if you think about higher income, people tend to own their homes and have they, they've accumulated some wealth and, 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 and portions in the stock market. They're the beneficiaries. And so it's really the working class that, 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 that are renters who have been hurt. And I add my uh, sister and brother-in-law, Mickey, who live in Charleston, South Carolina, and they are both retired. I mentioned them because they got Social Security checks. And guess what they saw in their checks? A nice COLA adjustment. Yeah, big increases. So that's another, you know, you could say beneficiary. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're bringing up this great point. Um, most uh, entitlement programs, including uh, Social Security. Right. Um, the SNAP program, which is what we used to call food stamps, um, those are all indexed for inflation, um, and and so that makes people people whole. Um, most of the components of Medicare and Medicaid are also indexed, but if you get to the COLA for Social Security, it was it was eight point seven percent. Most people are unaware that this this not only made recipients of social security whole but it added over a hundred billion dollars to disposable income through over a hundred billion dollars of increased deficit spending by the federal government so we now make here in an era that we would call or a phase we would call disinflation this is inflation rates are going down let's talk a bit about disinflation well yes inflation's coming down um, it's been fairly sticky. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's come down. It has not come down as fast as the Federal Reserve has has forecast it would. And many people are now, including Fed members, are uh, alluding to the prospect that reducing it from here to their 2% will be kind of, quote unquote, more cost to, costly to the economy than um than the reductions to date but let me let me toss out an important point here there is disinflation the rate of inflation is coming down that means the rate of price increases of all these different goods and services counted in either the cpi or pce price index are is slowing but the general price level is still increasing right okay and so the federal reserve and people in, who work in finance, they're, they're all focusing on this disinflation and will it come down to 2%. Meanwhile, households and, and businesses on Main Street um, are dealing with higher prices that are still increasing. And so if you look at, you can say, okay, oh, inflation has come down to, you know, three, three and three quarters percent or four and a half percent excluding food and energy, um, and that's down, and that's good. But cumulatively, the CPI is up 18.5% from just before the pandemic. And if you ask Main Street, if you say, gee, um, we're lucky the Fed's targeting 2%, that means prices are only going to be 2% higher next year. And and so we need to distinguish between the disinflation, which is good, but the general price level um, 
that is that is high and is going higher. You mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, Mickey, about uh, uh, renters getting hit hard by inflation. Let's talk about mortgages for a second. There is uh, news out this morning, Freddie Mac reporting earlier today, that the 30-year fixed mortgage rate is now 7.31%. That's the highest uh, since December of 2000. Uh, applications for home mortgages, Mickey, uh, are now 27% lower than they were a year ago at this time. So what's fueling this? And does this get back to what you mentioned about uh, about the stock market doing well in inflation? In other words, are people, instead of people buying homes, it doesn't make sense to buy a home at 7% mortgage if you have a 3% mortgage, but are people pushing their money elsewhere um, and because of this? Um, you know, so, so we've seen a pretty significant rise in yields on treasury bonds and therefore, and, it's got, and mortgages in mm-hmm. the last couple months. Um, and that has led to a, a stock market correction recently. So if we think about what, if we think about bond yields and mortgage rates, I mean, um, in 20 and 21, mortgage rates were below 3%. Why were they below 3%? Oh, because the Fed was keeping rates at zero, um, buying huge amounts of treasury and MBS securities and signaling to the market they were going to keep rates low for a long, long, long time. 2022 was a rude awakening when the Fed started hiking rates and then and then actually hiked rates quite rapidly. Um, inflation inflationary expectations were above two percent, and so bond yields adjusted. And so a very interesting point of speculation right now is these yields, um, like on Treasury ten-year Treasury securities that yield. Uh, 4.6 and mortgage rates that are seven and a quarter. Is that the new normal? And in a way, is that is our new normal very similar to the old normal that existed prior to the financial crisis, such that the low rates between the financial crisis and the pandemic were the aberration? So we may have to get used to these rates being above inflation. And, um, and of course, the housing market is being buffeted every which way. Because think about those millions of people who bought homes at extremely low mortgage rates in 2020 and 2021. And of course, all the tens of millions of homeowners that refinanced, they don't want to sell their homes now because they would have to, if they bought something else, they'd have to pay, you know, your 7.3. And so this has created a a lack of liquidity in the housing market, insufficient supply, and that's keeping prices high. And so when we think about the 7.3% mortgage and the, and the fact that home prices are high and not just high in you know, New York and San Francisco and LA, but in hundreds of cities around the US, it is precluding a lot of younger people from buying their first house. So it's, this is all part of the follow through unintended consequence of the Fed keeping rates so low, so long, and the very high inflation. 
Let's uh, let's talk a bit about the politics of all this, Mickey, which I cannot resist doing. Um, I would point you to a recent NBC News poll, which had Republicans enjoying a 21-point advantage on the question of which party better handles the economy. Now, Mickey, I'm going to offer a big word of caution with that 21-point advantage. The last time the Republicans had that big of a lead on that question, it was in 1991. I worked on the Bush campaign in 1992. I can tell you how that turned out. So maybe that's not the barometer we should look at. But if you look at the Washington Post ABC poll that came out the other day, Mickey, the one that kind of shocked everybody because it had Trump uh, at 52 and Biden at 42, only 30 percent people uh, polled in that uh, survey approve of the president's performance on the economy. If you drill down deeper into it, Mickey, 91% said food prices are not so good or poor. 87% felt the same regarding gasoline or energy prices. So it seems to me the president has a very simple problem, Mickey. He is going out and trying to sell Bidenomics and trying to have you believe that things are getting better, um, but people are feeling it in a different way. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's kind of like it's kind of like watching a, a football game where they go to instant review on something and you see someone getting clobbered. And then they come back and saying, we didn't see a penalty. <laughs> so the president is telling you all is well, but people people are experiencing something different. Yes. Well, now, Bill, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a touch out of my element talking about the political implications of this rather than the economic. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and of course, those polls are reflect people's perceptions and pa- of a package. Right. But, so if, if, if we look at the, the, if people vote with their pocketbooks, right. Um, and many do, um, then they're going to say um, the old adage, am, am I better off or worse off? And mm-hmm. let's face it for many, their wages in the last three years did not keep pace with inflation, particularly in after-tax dollars. Right. Um, their, their rents have gone up by 20% and they really have no defense. Uh, their food they purchase uh, has, has gone up over 25%. And then, and then of course, energy prices have gone up. Now, from an economics point of view, you can put the blame on fiscal policy, probably more than monetary policy. Right. Um, But then, of course, you could say, wait, um, perhaps a lot of that fiscal response to the pandemic was part of healthcare policy. When you shut down the economy, then you need to provide income support. Well, let's get let's get into fiscal policy here, Mickey, because you wrote a really great piece for the Hoover uh, Defining Ideas web channel, uh, August 23rd, for people who want to look it up. The title is Fiscal Policy and the Fed Work at Cross Purposes. And uh, here's a, uh, a quote from it. As the Federal Reserve ponders how much further it needs to raise interest rates to lower inflation to its 2% longer run target, it faces unanticipated, not widely understood counterbalance. Fiscal policy continues to stimulate economic growth, employment, and wages. Okay, so the Fed, as we know, has said, has asked itself, how high do we need to raise rates to slow down the economy to keep, right. get inflation down to two percent? At the same time, following the five trillion dollars of, you know, spending, which was largely transfers to individuals, cutting cutting checks to them to provide mm-hmm. income support, uh, the the. The Biden administration has followed through with the um, in, in November 2021, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, mm-hmm. one trillion dollars in budget authority 
over 10 years? Over 10 years. But I think they're now that they've got their act together, they're starting to spend it a little more rapidly on various infrastructure programs. Right. The CHIPS Act is about $300 billion, including $50 billion uh, uh, for semiconductors mm-hmm. that, that includes a 25% tax credit for um, investments in in things like in, in building infrastructure in building facilities to produce semiconductor chips for battery and battery storage right. these are going through the roof now they're very strong and then of course you have all of the tax credits for the so-called um uh inflation reduction act mm-hmm. and so there is a fair amount of fiscal stimulus that is boosting demand, boosting economic activity at the same time the Fed is trying to constrain it. Now, what is this? Well, of course, it's industrial policy. One can argue, and I think fairly in some cases, that some of the spending and credits are for national security purposes, semiconductors and the like, and batteries. Um, we know historically the track record of the government in picking the right projects and allocating resources is pretty poor, and yeah. um, and, and 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 so many of the tax credits under the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, are for green, you know, initiatives that in the long run probably have no or even negative impact on productivity, but in the near term, it's stimulating the economy. Right, so this is the question, Mickey. So these are the IIJA that you mentioned and the and the CHIPS Act, the CHIPS and Science Act. They pass with bipartisan support. And they pass with bipartisan support for one simple reason. They promise lots and lots of jobs. I think the uh, in the case of the infrastructure bill, like a million new jobs, I think, Mickey. But this is the question, which I think I cut you up before you're about to explain. Can government better stimulate the economy than the private sector? Not in the long run. No. That's my short answer. Um, you know, the, the, the government has a poor track record. Um, the m- markets and interest rates can allocate resources. Uh, the private sector tends to be uh, very efficient at, at investing and allocating resources. And that would, that's the best avenue for increasing long run productivity. However, you know, this is the the Biden administration is going to go down in history as as uh, emphasizing government spending, not just for transfer payments, as it did, but also for, you know, all of these uh, infrastructure spending initiatives. We're not going to know for years the final deliberation on what it means for productivity. But nevertheless, there is spending now, um, and it is, as you point out, it is creating jobs. Mm-hmm. And I might note in some areas like, like construction, uh, it's, it's adding to labor shortages. Right. But maybe the question put another way, Mickey, you spent a trillion dollars over 10 years. Is this a good return on investment? Or do we have to wait 10 years to see how it turned out? No. No, well, let's let's say it a different way. Is there a better way to 
allocate a trillion dollars? And the answer, I would, I would much rather have a streamlined uh, tax reform that lowers the cost of capital and encourages investment, once again, in a, in a streamlined, predictable way that, that kind of basically uh, creates this uh, healthy environment for investing over the long term. That's how you get the best allocation of capital and, and the best um, productivity outcome. Mm-hmm. Mickey, I want to bring up two other issues with you, which tie into the economy in this regard that also may cause political problems for the president in the year ahead. The first one's automobiles. Uh, you saw the president went to Detroit the other day and uh, walked the picket line with the auto workers are out on strike. I mentioned it uh, for these reasons, Mickey. First of all, if you look at uh, vehicles coming from the Detroit 3 right now, they're sitting in inventory an average of 52 days uh, before being sold in August. That's up from 31 days at the start of the year. This is according to Esmond data. So cars are not moving as fast as they used to. Mickey, the average price of a new vehicle has jumped from $39,900 to about $48,800. This is according to the Kelly Blue Book. And right now you have a strike over, among other things, higher wages. Unions want, I think, a 30 36% raise, 21% as a counter. What that suggests, Mickey, is that automobiles will become more expensive to make and ultimately passed along to the buyers. So here you have a problem for the president. You may be looking at people getting more sticker shot with automobiles. So your thoughts on this? Well, let me add something to what you've just laid out. Not only are new car prices up 22% and used car prices up 38%, yes. but over 80% of all new cars are financed. Right. And the interest average interest rate on financing is about 7.8%. So the monthly cost of, of, of buying a new car is is very, very, it's gone up dramatically. And um, this is, I'll tell you what's been surprising is even though um, interest rates have gone up so much, um, auto sales have through August have actually held their own and and gone up over the last two years, which is very surprising (laughs) that they've been quite resilient. And if you look at inventories, um, yes, the inventories have moved up lately, but the inventory to sales ratio for autos is still below its pre-pandemic level. Hmm. And um, yeah, so the, the auto industry faces some real issues um, in terms of costs of production and, of course, um, trying to be on the leading edge of this transition from combustible to electric vehicles. This is, they, they faced a heap of issues. I would say politically, the biggest issue is the UAW, you know, this is, this is, you know, just so symbolic and, right. and at the heart of the, of the electorate's vision of unionization. And um, I think it'll be, um, you know, a, a critical issue as the presidential campaign, you know, as they debate this. Yeah. The second issue I want to raise with you, Mickey, is Amazon. 
The Federal Trade Commission in 17 states are suing Andrews Amazon under the guise that the quote unquote everything store uh, fairly promotes its platform, unfairly promotes its platform and services at the expense of third party sellers who rely on the company's e commerce marketplace for distribution. I would point out Amazon is not the only big tech giant under the gun uh, for alleged antitrust violations. Google and Meta uh, also are facing legal action. But I mentioned Amazon, Mickey, because Amazon. A, is convenient for a lot of people, as they discovered during the pandemic. Stuff can show up at your doorstep and show up there fast. But also, Mickey, Amazon sells stuff cheap. So if you mess around with Amazon, then do you create a situation where prices are going to go up on Amazon and people are going to feel that as well? So again, I'm just interested in the politics of messing around with something that for a lot of people they see as a venue to affordable products. Well, you're you're bringing up a, a, a very good point that Amazon as it grew, transformed the whole industry of distributing goods right. and reduced the cost and made much more efficient the, the, the distribution of goods. And citizens, households benefited and businesses benefited tremendously. Um, once, you, once the government starts regulating and over-regulating, there you create inefficiencies and households end out paying for it one way or another. I mean, we could go off in any direction you want, but that's the, that's, that's really the, the sum of it. Um, of course you want Amazon to be a good citizen. You know, and there are very complex issues surrounding its practices and, but regulators like to regulate, and there there are tr there are trade offs here, and so I I caution against higher regulations. Although getting back to the major theme of today, mm -hmm. it its impact on the outlook for inflation is really quite minor. Yeah, it interests me, Mickey, in this regard when. Uh, government goes after monopolies. There's usually the message that ultimately we're doing this because this is good for the little guy. You know, for example, I'm old enough to remember when Ma Bell was broken up for BOCs, Bell Operating Companies, and this is good. Ultimately, it's going to drive down the cost of your telephone bill. But I'm not sure I understand how going after Amazon is going to make goods cheaper at Amazon. So again, I think you just kind of you're tinkering with somebody maybe you don't want to tinker with. I know the politics are attractive. You want to go after big tap. You want to talk about small companies getting punished and so forth. But I'm thinking about the consumers, those out there who are struggling with inflation right now. I, th I think that's right. And and yeah. consumers now, um, that have, and they've been quite resilient, um, you know, in, in the last year. Um, we don't want to undercut consumers. We don't want to undercut their real purchasing power in any way. And we do want an environment where um, employment continues to rise. And we also want an em environment where real wages are rising. We want increases in real purchasing power. And um, boy, have we been through a rough time the last three years. It looks like by statements and action, the, the Fed, having been through this rough patch, um, without is basically coming around to, you know, saying, okay, we're going to take the appropriate steps to keep inflation low. I'll tell you what's interesting here and, and, and should be a major concern. While the Federal Reserve has rediscovered its fundamentals and its mandate um, after a rough patch, you look at 
fiscal policy. And it's absolutely dysfunctional and rudderless. And seems to have no rules and no values and doesn't seem to learn any lessons from anything. And this is this is a, an enormous concern. Well, you are a great podcast guest because you just teed up my final segment, which is really the long-term implications for the Fed in terms of credibility. You, you wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal where you criticized, politely I'd mentioned, but you criticized the Fed for saying that they didn't really seem to have a game plan going into this last time around. They say, I think the word you used was ad-libbing. Well, so, so I join John Taylor and other scholars at Hoover in urging the Fed to, you know, have a systematic approach to monetary policy mm-hmm. and, you know, use certain rules, um, not formulaically, but as guidelines for the conduct of policy. And what you see is the Fed uh, craves its discretion and its discretion, once again, you know, during the pandemic, uh, led it to bad policies. And, and so, um, in a sense, the Fed's winging it, and they've done more of the right things. I mean, when you look at, you know, it was just 18 months ago, and the Fed was had the federal funds rate anchored to zero when inflation was over 6%. That's mm-hmm. no way to bring inflation down. But in 2022, they, they very aggressively raised rates, and now the Fed is... Um, in a pretty good position, it has its its policy rate five and a half percent. It's modestly above inflation. It has been lucky, and, and the private sector has been very resourceful, uh, and and the, the the consumers have been resilient, and the economy has held its own through all this. So 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 far so good. The Fed's back on the right track. Um, I still wish it would it would take more seriously um, a more systematic approach to its conduct of policy. And how, Mickey, Slowly, might this, how might this impact choices of future Fed members? If I put you in a position of authority where either you were interviewing the members or had to vote to confirm them, what would you want to know? Well, I I would certainly want to know what their objectives are and you know how they would interpret. Um, their dual mandate and how they would go about achieving it. Of course, keep in mind, Congress gave them this dual mandate. The Fed has interpreted it with a 2% inflation. Right. Um, I would question them on their new strategic plan, which which seems um, a very weak basis for ach- achieving their long-run goals. I could ask all sorts of questions, but guess what? I'm not going to be asking those presidents. the 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 Fed the the Fed governors, including the chair, are nominated by the president, mm-hmm. um, and and confirmed by the Senate, and that so they're going to be political choices. And um, whereas in history, the Federal Reserve Bank presidents were nominated by their own separate boards, and you know largely accepted by the Fed, very infrequently vetoed. More and more, the Fed is, uh, the Fed, the governors and in, in the Board of Governors in Washington is 
having more input to the types of people they want in, at, in the Federal Reserve at, at the president's level at the district bank. So unfortunately, these are political decisions and and we'll see what happens. But I think that the process of picking the Fed members is becoming more politicized and less based on how they would achieve their the dual mandate. All right, let's end this podcast on a sour note, which is insulting your uh, your academic qualities, your brilliance, your insightfulness, and ask you a rank pundit question, which is, do you see us on a path to 2% inflation? How soon do you think that's achievable? But then also just how you think inflation is going to play out in the next 12 months or so. Do you think, do you think we're just going to be in a status quo of higher prices for the time being? Or do you think there will be any kind of change dramatic enough, Mickey, that people might actually notice it? I think inflation will continue, will drift down a bit, excluding food and energy. Food prices, even though commodity foods prices have come down, food prices, both in restaurants and, and for purchasing food at home, will stay high because wages and distribution costs are so high. Right. Energy prices are clearly going up in the, in the near term, and you're going to feel it near this winter in your home heating oil and the like. Um, I think inf- core inflation will drift down. When you ask the question about 2%, while the Fed has it as kind of a long-run objective, if you ask the question, will the Fed continue to raise rates and keep rates high to push inflation down to 2% right away, the answer, I think, is no. And I think this this you know reflects the how, how the Fed is, is changing. And once again, the, the cost of getting inflation down to 2% right now, maybe higher than they're willing to bear. But, you know, things are better. And will people feel the difference? No. Once again, people, households and businesses respond to prices and the slow reduction in inflation will not resonate as much to households and businesses as it will to um, the Fed and to um, financial markets. Okay, a final, final question, Mickey, and I promise this is it. Um, for those listening who want to follow inflation more closely, make better sense of the economy, where would you steer them? In other words, if they wanted to read two or three, if they would go to one or two or three publications every day to just keep abreast of information, where would you go? I think the, the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. um, the Financial Times out of London. I'd take a look at um, the weekly The Economist magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, the the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, covers the the Federal Reserve. I think it's important to try to, you know, dig underneath the the headlines in the news and try to really understand how the economy is working, what what makes it tick. And on on this point, you know, empirical work shows that um, when things are changing rapidly, like inflation, Consumers have a, a better track record in forecasting what's going to happen than professional forecasters of the Fed. Yeah, on the other hand, I'd add, by the way, the reading list, John Cochran's excellent blog, The Grumpy Economist. Uh, John just does a terrific job of parsing information and just laying stuff out and easy to understand. So easy that I can understand it. I I, I fully agree with that. Well, Mickey, I enjoyed the conversation. Anything else you'd like to add or have you you've had enough of trying to do Econ 101 with me today? 
No, I think, you know, so the one point I would make is we've been through a very, very rough patch. Um, the Fed certainly didn't anticipate this, even though you could use any simple model to have forecast this and the Fed didn't. Um, and, and, you know, one of the critical questions here is, you know, have the policymakers learned their lesson and will they do things right after this? And the answer is really unclear. I worry that they, that, that they haven't. Um, but uh, let me, let me conclude on, on one final point. And that is, you know, 20 years from now, when historians look back on this period, what are they going to say about, you know, the pandemic and the policy responses to the pandemic and the inflation? And I think what they may conclude is there were clear excesses on deficit spending and fiscal policy, and there were clear excesses by the Federal Reserve, but households and businesses were extraordinarily efficient in responding. Households uh, saved a lot of the checks that were written to them so that they built up this cushion and then they could use that, they used that cushion as higher inflation uh, bid into their real purchasing power. Businesses did a marvelous job of maintaining, you know, low operating costs, keeping their businesses afloat, keeping inventories low. And so the private sector, um, once again, showed how resilient it can be, um, even through a period where there were um, pretty egregious policy mistakes. That's well put. Well, Mickey, I appreciate your time today, and I hope you enjoy your affiliation with the Hoover. I know we enjoy having you uh, as part of our team and uh, the monetary policies uh, conferences, by the way, for folks listening. Uh, you can find them online. You can read Mickey's papers. I think a couple of his presentations might actually have video of it. So definitely check that out. So, Mickey, thanks again for doing the podcast today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Matters of Policy and Politics, a Hoover Institution podcast devoted to governance and balance of power here in America and around the globe. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to our show. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and X feeds. I call it X Twitter, otherwise, but X. Our X handle is at Hoover Inst. That's spelled H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. I mentioned our website at the beginning of the show. That is Hoover.org. Uh, I recommend that you go there and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which keeps you updated on what Mickey Levy and his Hoover colleagues are up to. That's mailed to you weekdays. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with a new installment of Matters of Policy and Politics. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.